can see from the um, size of the people here, here's a person. This is an enormous test chamber. It was originally built to test the lunar rover. And the pro JWST project had to do substantial refurbishment because it wasn't meant for testing very clean, delicate optics. So they had to do a lot of work in addition to installing some optics test equipment. And the cutaway picture shows the telescope inside the chamber and suspended above is part of the test equipment because if you want to check that the optics are working right, there's several things you have to do in addition to just injecting signals. You have to measure the surfaces and make certain that the shape is what you dialed in um, to the motors on the back side. And what does it take to make this kind of a test work? Well, let's take a look at what it was like for everything to get loaded into the chamber. And that big white um, Quonset hut is the shipping container for the telescope. And that gets used over and over and it's now full of the telescope on the ship outside of Karoo. And so you can see all of the work in getting it the, the place set up. Here's the telescope. And you'll notice that if you look closely, occasionally you'll see some guy wires because the motors on the telescope that will run the deployments later aren't actually strong enough to move things under the force of gravity. They're meant to work in zero gravity. And so um, they need a little help when you're on the ground. And we're getting close to getting this shoved into the chamber um, to manipulate the telescope a special set of tracks had to be built on the floor. And you know, I'm, what I'm showing you is several months compressed into a, a couple of minutes. And we're about to close it up. And now you have to watch very closely. The temperature gets all the way down to the coldest that it's going to run. And then the, the thermometer comes back up and the telescope will get wheeled out. And that part at the end there that went by very quickly when it was at temperature, we spent three months running the test. And it was um, three months of 24-7 operation. So it was a pretty big deal. And it was a bigger deal in terms of consuming um, cryogens, consuming the materials that keep the test chamber cold. And the chamber actually had to be gotten down to about 20 degrees above absolute zero to simulate the environment of being in space. And that took, um, you can see the numbers, 1.73 million gallons of liquid nitrogen. It's an enormous amount. Um, the cryogenic suppliers loved us, except for something I'll talk about in just a moment. While we were testing at Johnson, Hurricane Harvey hit. We did not stop the test. We kept going. I happened to be there. In fact, I uh, kind of wondered if I wanted to be there in the following sense. We had a shift schedule, and my shift was to start basically the day that Harvey hit. 
So I was flying out late the day before. I had enough sense to rent um, an SUV instead of my usual compact car. And as I, you know, the Houston Hobby Airport, which is the one you can fly to nonstop from Tucson, was already closed. It's at a very low elevation, floods easily. So I had to change my plane reservation, fly to Bush, and then change. I, to get to Bush, I had to change planes in Dallas. There weren't nonstops. So we're taxiing out on the runway in Dallas. And the pilot comes on and says, we're going to delay takeoff for about 10 minutes because I want to go down the clear part of the spiral arm in the storm. And I'm going, what? Do I want to be on this airplane or not? And we made it fine. And the SUV that I rented proved to be very handy because I ended up being one of the people that would go around and pick up others that were working on the test at hotels at shift change time. So I was a chauffeur for part of the time. So here's a picture from inside the test chamber. And you see a lot of bright lights. And this was part of what is called photogrammetry. We literally took a series of pictures of little reflectors that were placed on the structure to understand where everything was. That stuff isn't flying in the lights were turned off for most of the test but every few days we would take a measurement to make certain that everything was still in the same place that we thought it had been in when we closed up the chamber so what did my team actually do in those three months well we participated in a series of very carefully planned tests to make certain that every optical element got tested, meaning that some light was um, shined through it. We did all kinds of measurements. We practiced um, tilting and tipping all the mirrors in the telescope, making certain that we knew how to line them up. And so we were spending a lot of time taking short exposures of simulated stars and checking that they looked right. And our colleagues on the NearSpec team, NearSpec is uh, Near Infrared Spectrograph contributed by the European Space Agency. And it has a very um, clever feature that it has a whole field of little shutters that you can open and close, which astronomers would open up to match and match a collection of stars or galaxies on the sky and leave the rest um, dark. Well, they opened up the shutters in a pattern to simulate what Hurricane Harvey looked like. <laughs> so an amusing thing. When we were done at Johnson, the telescope went back into the shipping container and put on a C5A and flown over to Los Angeles, where it then got moved um, into a big clean room at Northrop Grumman. And the main thing at Northrop Grumman was taking the telescope and mating it to the spacecraft and the sun shield. The spacecraft is on the underneath side because it doesn't need to be cold. In fact, it'd be a big bother if it were cold. And it has to uh, do a lot of housekeeping stuff. It sends the signals 
down to the earth, all the data we take, all the images, and it receives all the commands and the cues of what we're going to observe next. So the spacecraft is pretty important. And so this is, you can see the sun shield kind of looking all swooshy around there and the telescope being lowered. And I have, here it is um, fully mated, taken from um, a picture from one end. And this is the view you would see of it just a little while after we start unfolding things after launch. But here's another one of these videos that will let you get a sense of what it's like to pick up a telescope, move it around, and then put it into position. And you notice there's something that looks like a little umbilical cord hanging off the bottom of the telescope. That's where all of the electrical cabling signals that go to the instruments are located, and also a cooling um, pipe to help Miri get cold because the mid-infrared instrument has this refrigerator that gets its detectors colder than the rest of the facility, and that most of the cooler is on the underneath side because it's main job is to be like a refrigerator, so it dumps heat out on the bottom side. And so here's the telescope finally made it to the sun shield, but not fully folded up. And if you look up at the top, you see that the telescope is suspended from the ceiling of the test chamber. And again, that's because part of the structure here is when it's it's being held up above the sun shield as it will on orbit. And when it's in that kind of a position, um, the structural elements that are extended as they will be in the final configuration in space aren't quite strong enough to hold it up. So they need some help. When it's all compact down, everything is um, strong enough because it's there aren't any of these delicate connections that are meant to reject heat in position. So it's pretty amazing. Um, and we got to see the telescope in this configuration back in October 2019 when we had a meeting over there. And then, of course, all the rest of the tours that we had hoped to have got canceled because COVID hit a few months later. And I have to say that the impact of COVID has been not negligible, but the team has found very good ways to work around um, some of the problems. One of the funny things was one of the hardest things to work around is that when you go out um, and you have a clean room, everyone has to put on the special bunny suits. In the room where that's done at Northrop is relatively small. And so the thing that slowed down the work once COVID hit um, was how long it took everyone to get suited up when they did it only a few people at a time because of this small garbing room. The actual clean room is plenty big and has lots of ventilation, but getting, getting dressed up took all the time. Now we're starting to fold it up and there it is all folded up, ready to be put in the shipping container and something I didn't point out along the way, but you know something that Southern California is famous for? 
earthquakes. And there have been two while we were there, neither of them major, neither of them um, transmitted any forces onto the telescope beyond what it was designed to withstand, in fact, way, way smaller. But there were a couple of critical maneuvers that people were quite nervous that if there had been an earthquake when the telescope was dangling off the crane, for example, that might not have been too pleasant. So they tried to make certain that they minimized that time to the maximum extent possible. Okay, this is the ship that I have mentioned. It's not actually owned by the European Space Agency. It's leased um, by them in conjunction with the French company that builds the rocket, Ariane Space. And it's not an overly large ship, but it's good size. And last week we got to see a video that has not yet been released of what it looked like as the telescope would in the shipping container was being put into the boat. And the inside of this boat is amazing. It looked like polished stainless steel, more or less, very clean. And its primary job is carrying the Ariane 5 rocket parts from Europe to the launch site. So they're used to carrying space-borne um, stuff between distant places. And Tomorrow, we think it will be at the dock and the telescope package will be unloaded and there'll be a press release, we think, on Wednesday showing how this has all come about. Here's a view of the Ariane launch complex on this northeast corner of South America. Um, a lot of what goes on there looks very similar to what goes on at Cape Canaveral. In fact, the way they move things around looks similar to some of the moving equipment at the Cape. And there's some views of the buildings and the launch towers. There's a launch. That's what we hope to see the morning of December 18th. And now assuming that this all goes off smoothly the rest of the way, what's gonna happen after that? Well, what this very busy chart, and don't try to parse it all out, but the orange part is when we're checking out that the spacecraft is okay, we're gonna get the telescope fully deployed from this folded up configuration. Then in the green section, the telescope mirror is going to be aligned so that instead of being 18 segments kind of higgledy-piggledy after launch, it'll be turned into the equivalent of a single smooth mirror. And then the purple part is where we're gonna check out science instruments, make certain that we understand their performance and have all the pointing parameters right and so on. And the picture at the bottom is of the Mission Operations Center that's in the Space Telescope Science Institute at Baltimore. And not very long after launch, all control will be shifted from the launch site in Karoo to the people in Baltimore. And there's a special section for my team to sit and we will be looking at computer screens and making certain that NIRCAM, our favorite instrument, um, is behaving correctly. And we will have other computers where we'll look at the test data that comes back, the test images, and we're going to spend 
close to six months there, starting in January. And this just gives you a sense of what that long chunk of time um, in aligning the telescope. So the very first picture called near cam first light is not a picture that is uh, going to excite anyone except those of us who will be heaving such a sigh of relief because we know everything's basically working. And we have to go from that mess of stars if you look at a bright star, you get to see it 18 times when the segments aren't aligned. You get one star image for each of the segments. So it's like having 18 little telescopes. And what you want to do is make them work like one big telescope. So you, you have to find them all. We don't think they'll all be in a single near cam field of view to begin with. In fact, we may have to do a little scanning around to find them all. Once we find them all, we'll put them into um, a nice hexagonal array where each one, each position corresponds to A1, A2, A3, etc. So it's very easy to keep track. When you see the image, you'll know which one you change from how you sent the commands. And then after you get those pretty, each individual segment into, into this hexagonal structure, you get it tweaked up, then you're going to collapse them all down on top of each other. And then we have to use a special fixture that checks the focus jump from one segment to the next. And finally, at the end, we will have these all in position so that it acts as though it is not a segmented telescope, but a single big telescope. And then once we get it lined up like that, the predictions are that we'll only have to check it, change it, tweak it up every two weeks or so. And you might ask, how do we know that this part's going to work? Well, it turns out that the mathematics involved of analyzing these images and telling the telescope what to mirror segments what to do is the same as we use at our ground-based telescopes for what we call adaptive optics where you try to take out the changes induced by the earth's atmosphere um, to the light coming to the telescope but on the ground because the atmosphere shimmers you have to do that a thousand times a second as opposed to once every two weeks. Once every two weeks is relatively easy. And we actually don't do the calculations in the telescope itself. We take the images, they get sent to the ground, they're analyzed, and then the tweaks to the mirror positions are sent back up. So it um, should be pretty efficient. And there are those that predict we may not even have to do it every two weeks. And once we get to that beautiful state of a single smooth mirror, we can start taking data with all the instruments. You can see in the lower right, my, my favorite mirror cam. The upper left is my husband's favorite mirror because that's the one he looks after. And then I'll point out that there's some more talks in this series where you know, I gave somewhat short shrift to the science that's going to happen because I wanted to tell you how we actually built the telescope. And 
my colleagues here are going to tell you more about how we're going to use it. And then I'm hoping that about this time next year, we'll have some gorgeous stuff to show you, beautiful pictures. Thanks a lot for listening. Thank you very much, Marsha. No, I can you hear me through this? Yeah, I just, so I'm first of all gonna ask if there are any questions. I'll take a few from the audience and then we can, there we go. And then we can uh, look and see if we have questions on Zoom. All right. How do you physically point the telescope? Ah, that's a very good question. It has something that we call reaction wheels. And those can be used to torque the telescope around into position. And then once we get close, there's something called the fine steering mirror that takes out any residual vibrations. And part of the reason that there's a propellant tank is that because of the sun shield and the way the torques work, um, we'll build up momentum preferentially in one direction and have to use a little bit of um, propellant to do what we call unload the reaction wheels. <laughs> so what, what exactly does a principal investigator do? Ah, <clears throat> I didn't put into this slide package the buck stops here slide, but um, Basically, I was responsible for making certain that the instrument was designed and built to meet the requirements that we had laid down. The buck stops here part was that um, when something bad happened, I had to be the one to tell Goddard that something bad had happened. And probably in all uh, honesty, the actual worst thing that happened during the construction of NearCam was that our optics are held together um, on a beryllium bench, same material as the telescope mirrors. And those benches had to have a lot of machining and that because beryllium powder is poisonous, it gets done at a special place, special company called Axis in Alabama. And they were falling behind schedule. And so they were working on Saturdays and it was mostly computer controlled, but there were a few steps where they had to do something manually. And there had been some little um, sort of uh, measuring rods that had been attached as part of the process. And they were supposed to get shaved off by going in say the Y direction and the guy pushed X instead and drilled a hole right through the bench. It cracked and there was $2 million down the drain just like that. <laughs> that was not one of my better days. <laughs> I don't have any questions on Zoom. If there's anyone watching on Zoom who'd like to ask Professor Riki a question, please type it into the chat. Uh, what's the expected service life? Ah, well, the, the engineer design lifetime was five years, and that means that all the mechanisms were put through accelerated tests to simulate being used nominally for five years. Actually, the test you do it for twice the lifetime. The propellant tanks used for this momentum unloading and keeping the orbit in this L2 location, which isn't fully stable, it's, a, it's an unstable point, 
the propellant loads um, nominally should take us through 10 years. And there's some thinking that um, if you organize the observations in the right order, you can minimize how much propellant you might have to use and who maybe we can go a bit longer. We do now have some questions on from uh, Zoom. First question, what limitations are there with respect to direction to observe versus avoiding heat sources like the sun, et cetera? Ah, very good question, yes. Um, as one could sort of tell from the way the sun shield is laid out with the sun, earth, moon in one direction, um, JWST can't point anywhere in the sky. Um, it can only point to about 40% of the sky at any one time. And as it, as it and the earth go around the sun, the exact pointing directions change by roughly a degree a day because there's 365 days to go around the sun. And so we have what we call the field of regard. And there are two zones, one in the north, ecliptic north, and one in the ecliptic south, where you can observe um, the full year round. Another question. Were any flaws found during testing? If so, how were they fixed? Ah, indeed, some flaws were found in the test at Johnson, for example. Um, there was a funny cyclic variation of a vibration in the telescope structure. And it took a little while to figure out what is disturbing the optics. Well, it turned out that someone noticed that the optical disturbances were in synchronism with heaters turning on and off in the box on the back side of the telescope where some instrument electronics are located. Those electronics have to be kept warmer than the surroundings, than the, the being so close to absolute zero. They were designed to work closer to room temperature. So there's heaters. And when those heaters were cycling on and off, it was changing the precise size of the connection between that box and the rest of the telescope and disturbing the telescope. And so it was figured out that by changing the nature of that connection to being not a rigid pole, you could get rid of that problem. We've got a couple more questions pop up here on Zoom. Does the solar wind interfere with maintaining direction? Oh, it certainly does. And in fact, if you go back and find some old drawings of Webb, you'll see that the sunshade is bigger in a slightly different shape. And it was realized that that um, shape needed to be modified because we couldn't take that much momentum coming from the solar wind. And I didn't show this, but there's a flap on the back side of the telescope that will get adjusted and locked into position on orbit once we kind of get a sense of exactly how the solar wind is affecting things to help minimize some of that buildup. There's another question. Will any of the Hubble deep fields be duplicated? Oh, they are first on my list. <laughs> uh, in fact, the one in the Southern Hemisphere where the Chandra satellite also observed for 7 million seconds is where my team is going to spend several hundred hours of our observing time. Do we have any other questions here from the audience in the room? 
Okay, we've got one more up here. I was the richest man in, wor in the world, and I wanted to fill this thing myself. How much would it cost? Are you ready? $10 billion plus some contribution from the Europeans. <laughs> I'll pay the $7 billion. <laughs> <laughs> it, we might be able to duplicate it for somewhat cheaper because we learned a few things along the way, but it's mostly the the salary of all the people working on it so all right thank you so much for coming out this evening before before we clap i'd like to remind you that our next lecture is two weeks from today october 25th christina williams and everett Schloin will tell us about near cam perspectives on the early universe and exoplanetary systems how we might find other planets like earth Please, the telescope is open. Check out our museum on the ground floor in the original Stewart Observatory building. And let's thank Professor Riki one more time. <laughs>